Hi, Gillian. Is that you? Back you again. <laughs> back again. You, you clear to talk? What is, yes, I am. I'm good to talk. That's apologies great. for yesterday, Paul. I did a say. I have serious, serious brain fog. I broke things down, and then as we were talking, just everything went out the window. But I think it's just important that, you know, even with that, I was saying yesterday as well about the piece that it is for the Human Rights Consortium, yeah. the panel discussion. You know, and I'm conscious that there was very few unionists in the room, but for those that were, it was a difficult subject. Um, so I'm just yeah. I'm let's let's deal with that in the interview. That would be that would be good yeah. to bring that out actually. And actually, yeah. you're you're completely fine yesterday, but I, I must admit I wasn't altogether happy with the quality for, because I had my own okay. brain fade, which is that I, I failed to switch off one of the media settings on my phone, so we were getting pinged during it, which actually happened again when I did another interview a few minutes ago, because I don't really understand okay. how to use my phone properly, but that's another story. Do you want to tell me how to do that, and I'll turn it off on mine? Oh, no, no, well, it's just a matter of uh, the sound setting, but it was, on, it was on my phone, so it was people okay. sending me text messages, and it was pinging, which was a bit irritating, oh. but anyway. So let, hopefully, okay. I've tried to switch that off this time, so hopefully that we won't get interrupted with that. But anyway, okay, okay. so thanks very much, Julianne, for doing this and we'll we'll head into this again and I was very keen Julianne to talk with you about human rights and the Bill of Rights because you are a, you are a unionist politician by background you were a PUP councillor um, but despite the perception that unionism isn't engaged in the conversation around the Bill of Rights you are. You have been. So, so talk a yes. bit about what your view is about human rights and how a Bill of Rights can support that. Okay. I think human rights themselves are important because they help protect against abuse of those who are more powerful, that they enable people to defend themselves against corruption, societal corruption, be that within government, a public agency or a workplace. Um, I think that no society is perfect, not least Northern Ireland. A uh, Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, in my opinion, is important for a number of reasons. First, um, the, the primary reason is that it was mandated for by the people of Northern Ireland uh, via the Belfast Agreement referendum and all subsequent agreements that have came on the back of that. Uh, secondly, I think it's the objective, uh, which was to entrench those human rights that we all enjoy and build on a rights-based society, particularly on one that was emerging from conflict and one with a, a history of political bias and discrimination as we have here. Um, so we would be very minded, when I say we, um, you know, whilst I'm no longer a member of the Progressive Unionist Party, uh, that is my background, that's where my uh, political allegiances, to speak, would, would lie. Um, and those people that I have engaged with in the past have, for years, long before I even come on the political scene, um, have been very strongly supportive of the Northern Ireland Bill of Rights. Um, and we have engaged on that subject. Um, you know, we've had various engagements with the Human Rights Commission, with the Equality Commission, and we support the work that they do and continue to do within Northern Ireland. Now, that's a really important point, Julianne, because there is this perception that the Bill of Rights argument is something that is led by Republicans and nationalists, that is in their interest, and is something that has alienated loyalism and unionism. But that's that's a misreading of what's happened, because, as you say, a number of loyalists have been very strongly engaged in the conversation around the Bill of Rights. Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't always been seen through the lens of sectarian divisions, because... I mean, the very the very concept of a Bill of Rights predates its mandate, it predates the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement. It was lobbied for at one point by Unionist parties intermittently. I think it was it dates back to the 1970s, if I'm right. Um, and a, a position that has, obviously, over the years, uh, intermittent support, but it's moved towards um, 
a position of being in favour of a UK-wide Bill of Rights um, rather than one that's Northern Ireland specific. I I haven't actually consulted with anyone, so it, it is merely my opinion. But I do think that that's largely to do with the psychological and the physical barriers that have emerged post Good Friday Agreement. Um, I mean, I've said before, you'll not need me to recite them, but you'll remember the news coverage of Jerry Adams' comments that the, the rights-based approach to equality is the Republican strategy to quote-unquote break the bastards. Uh, now, for me, for this, I, I describe myself as a pragmatic unionist. I would refute the idea that a, a rights-based approach could advance aspirations for United Ireland. I would argue that the absence of one, however, would. <laughs> um, of course, that isn't the first time either that... Um, Sinn Féin have claimed a rights-based strategy. In fact, rather controversially, they made the numerous attempts throughout the years to portray themselves as the natural outgrowth of the civil rights movement. Now, in my opinion, the use of such provocative language has mounted a psychological barrier for unionism. And the physical barrier presents itself in our system of governments, which I believe is institutionalised sectarianism. Every election in Northern Ireland is a constitutional show of strength rather than a mandate for socio-economic change. Um, but I think that um, for unionists like myself who measure the strength of the union, not by any political party's electoral strength, but by the socioeconomic wealth and quality of life that citizens here enjoy, I think that it's paramount um, to secure in the future of the union that we um, quite forthrightly accept and, and move to bring into play in Northern Ireland Bill of Rights. And this conversation about rights actually has become a green and orange issue as if rights are something that benefit Catholic stroke nationalists stroke Republicans and disadvantage Unionists, Loyalists, uh, Protestants. Yet, really, if one tries to take away the issues around identity from this, I mean, if you look in terms of who are the most deprived communities in Northern Ireland, they certainly aren't just within the Catholic community. And if you go to Newton Ars Road or somewhere in Belfast, then actually there's a large level of discrimination, disadvantage, poverty amongst loyalist communities. Yes, all of those socioeconomic inequalities and disadvantages, they don't have a nationality, a religious background, a sexual orientation, a disability. Um, you know, they, they present themselves and they affect people um, with the same weight. Um, you know, throughout society, and it's a problem for us all. I think that rights-based approaches should be apolitical. Um, that's not to say that that somehow circumvents our, our um, you know, political opinions or our government's policy making. Um, but I, I think that it's the right approach um, in terms of um, finding the right balance for all. But that comes on to the question about what do we mean by rights and human rights? Because in a sense, superficially, it's a right to... To, to, to protection of one's life from violence, uh, it's uh, the, the, the ability to express oneself, but actually the, the rights we're talking about, I think, go far beyond those. So, so what rights do you see as potentially being enshrined in a Bill of Rights? Them all, I would like to say. I mean, what was mandated within the, the Good Friday Agreement was uh, basically to, to supplement the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, you know, so... Uh, in terms of what the uh, you know the consortium produced thereafter, I was quite impressed, and I believe that's where the Progressive Unionist Party was at too, was that they supported um, what the, the consortium had come up with, although some unionist parties at the time had said that they'd went outside of the remit, that they had an overreach. Um, but I think that, you know, as I've explained, 
um, in terms of the socio-economic wealth and quality of life that citizens enjoy in Northern Ireland. You know, we are to measure the strength of the union not by the size of the political parties, but by the size or by by that wealth, by that socio-economic qualities that you know a, a, a bill of rights um, transcends that civil liberties, social freedoms, the, the political liberties and security, um, and encompasses a rights-based approach to tackle the deprivation and inequality that, in my view, would strengthen the union. So um, I'd be quite interested in looking at the, the um, uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, and bringing that into a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Um, I think what was proposed um, is ideal. Um, I think that you know they, they, they have the draft there for us. Um, which kind of gives the outworkings of what a bill may look like. Um, I think that in itself encompasses everything that I would want to see in Northern Ireland Bill of Rights. And that means really socioeconomic rights as well as the traditional human rights. Absolutely. Um, you know, human rights themselves, um, you know, they, they, they give a, what, a minimum standard, if you will, um, you know, such as healthcare, education, um, those basic rights, but obviously observing those rights do not dictate government policy. Uh, unfortunately, some governments will put profit at the heart of public policy rather than people, um, as we've seen. Um, but I think where we have those um, moral obligations um, on the powerful, regardless of their philosophy or ideas, um, and mechanisms for accountability when these standards can contravene. Now, in a, in a sense, if, you, if we had a Bill of Rights today and it included a right to healthcare, in a sense, our National Health Service in Northern Ireland would be failing on, on that because of the, the length of the, the waiting list. So do you see the Bill of Rights as being a mechanism by which we achieve our, our basic universal rights within our society? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's one of the problems. You, you do look around you within your local community and you see the deprivation that exists and the inequality that exists, the discrimination that exists. And have we got a Bill of Rights? Um, it copper fastens, it reinforces, it embeds those rights into our society and it enables us to hold people accountable locally. Um, and I, I think that um, would help us in terms of tackling those deprivations that we, well, the blight this place, really, to be quite honest, um, the, the blightest. Um, and it goes a step further, really, than the, the just the, the human rights legislation. You know, there's a, uh, an obligation, a moral obligation then, on the, the powerful here, our parties here, um, to cast aside philosophy or ideas and, and act towards, um, you know, a, a, a standardised, um, a standardised, uh, there's no words, Paul, a standardised, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, uh, this virus, this coronavirus, yeah. it's giving me brain fog, um, but I think that it would um, help, you know, in terms of those issues. We've got a lot of controversial issues that exist in Northern Ireland. When it comes to deciding a programme for government, um, you know, our parties can't, can't really uh, make any sort of consensus. You know, we've experienced that there within the last three years and the collapse of the government, you know, and it has been well documented in the substantive and comprehensive research that's sitting on the shelf that a Bill of Rights could potentially resolve some of those issues that resulted in those frequent interruptions in our government that we've experienced here in Northern Ireland. So we can't just rely on a political culture of respect when one doesn't actually exist. So if we had this Bill of Rights, it would allow uh, our political parties to um, deal with the issues at hand rather than negotiate them. So would you see it as being uh, essential as a, a means of underpinning the, the programme for government? So that if we had a Bill of Rights which enshrined people's rights to a basic access to health care 
and also to um, some form of economic equality, then actually that would influence the programme for government in how it's being made up. Absolutely. It would influence the programme for government and also the ministerial code of conduct. But clearly there are problems, aren't there? Because we've got structural inequality uh, within Northern Ireland. We have significant levels of poverty, uh, both in the PUL community and in the, the Catholic Nationalist Republican community. So do you believe that a Bill of Rights can help to address those functional economic inequalities? I think it would certainly be a stepping stone. I mean, don't get me wrong, a Bill of Rights isn't going to be a magic wand. You know, it's not going to solve everything overnight. These things take time, but you need a foundation and you need a starting point. And I think a Bill of Rights is exactly that. And I suppose because often these things come out of skills and that comes out of the educational system, then a Bill of Rights could be a mechanism for more effectively challenging educational inequality. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, it's been well documented over the years that, you know, Protestant boys are those most disadvantaged in the education system. Um, and I think that that in itself, you know, a Bill of Rights would help further advance that. And as I say, it would place moral obligations on those who are charged with leading that department, um, with those for the executive. Um, and it would also introduce those mechanisms for accountability when those standards, as I say, have been contravened. Now, we are talking not long after the issue of rights in the Republic was a big issue around reproductive rights and around uh, same-sex marriage. So how do you see the relationship between those challenges in policy terms with the Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland, where the leadership, the political leadership of unionism is very strongly against both same-sex marriage and against uh, any liberalisation of the traditional position on abortion? Yeah, I mean, we only have to look back to the, the uh, legal case that was taken by Sarah, Sarah Year, you know, in terms of Northern Ireland abortion restrictions. Um, when the High Court ruled that Northern Ireland's uh, restrictions contravened the UK's human rights commitments. Um, you know, and it was the same as well, you know, with the likes of the bedroom tax that they were attempting to force on partners of people with severe disabilities. Um, you know, human rights, those that Bill of Rights, protect us from political bias or oversight. Um you know, I think that if we have minimum standards, you know, well, sorry, let me rephrase that, because regardless of the Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland, you know, it's not necessarily the primary piece of legislation, you know, it's the foundation stone, but there are other international obligations that governments have, you know, in terms of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, and any changes post-Brexit, um, you know, that, that happens in the legal landscape in, in the United Kingdom. So how would you see the conversation taking place within Northern Ireland? Because in a sense, it's, we've got a solution that's been imposed by Westminster around same-sex marriage and around reproductive rights. Uh, we haven't had that conversation really in Northern Ireland. And I'm not even sure if we can have it because of the, the level of distrust between different parts of the political system. I don't think we can have that conversation. I don't think that that conversation will happen. Um, you know, the, the legislation is what is. The changes have come in from Westminster. They were obligated to do so, in my opinion, obligated to do so. Particularly when you've got high courts. You know, we, we've set out a reputation of being a, you know, Great Britain, the, the home, the champion, you know, of human rights, you know, harking back to World War II or post-World War II. You know, you can't then damage the reputation of, a, you know, of, of the, your human rights obligations and ignore a province within your own country, within your own uh, kingdom, you know, uh, it's too late. So that raises the question about what the relationship is between identity and human rights and whether 
a framework for human rights, such as the Bill of Rights, can protect different communities' sense of attachment to specific identities. What, how do you see that relationship unfolding through a Bill of Rights? Um, well, I think it's already it's, it's already there. It exists within the human rights legislation that we currently already have in terms of our civil political liberties, our, our security, our freedoms. You know, that's also encompassed within the, the Belfast Agreement. And I think that's why it's really important, Paul, that this Belfast Agreement was mandated for by the people of Northern Ireland. And it is a huge feeling, huge feeling on both the British government, our government here, and the Irish government here are the co-guarantors of this, that haven't progressed that, that have allowed these... Um, these agreements to fall to the wayside um, or to be kicked down the, down the road, you know, like a can. Um, and I think that it's absolutely paramount to build in trust, build in people's um, faith in the systems, um, particularly at a time where we're going through institutional reform, um, that we uphold those agreements that have been binded by the, the people of this place. I suppose what I'm trying to, to step carefully around is the fact that within my perception is that within parts of loyalist communities, there is this fear that the attachment to the British identity is being eroded and that it's a challenge to people's sense of who they are. And can a human rights framework assist in protecting communities' sense of their own identity, given that we don't know what's going to happen constitutionally, but given the sense that they feel their identity is under threat? Um, you know, human rights, rights-based approaches are there to protect minorities. Um, and to be quite frank, uh, unionism is within a minority, particularly a political minority. That does not mean a constitutional minority, um, but in a, a political minority it is. Um, you know, I had quite recently there, uh, over the summer, last summer, um, we had uh, Dr. Michael Wardlow out and he had done a, a short session, well, we say a short session that ended up going into an hour and a half. God help me, he came out um, for a short interview with us within the local community and we pulled together some people to ask some questions of them to understand the work of the Equality Commission, what was it they did and he had shared some stories, I can't remember verbatim exactly what it was but he had, he had given us a case example um, and it was to do with a, a Protestant football player or a Protestant boxer perhaps someone from background that they felt they had been discriminated against and disadvantaged because of their religious background and how the equality legislation was applicable to support them and how that person actually um, ended up winning their tribunal, their case. Um, and there was a bit of shock, you know, it was in the room that that had happened because um, there's this perception that equality, that those, you know, those legislations and when we talk about human rights we talk about equality is specific to a particular community it's about preventing the discrimination political bias that happened against the catholic and nationalist community in northern ireland you know back during the civil rights movement or led to the civil rights movement and there's this perception that that belongs to that particular community um and i think that that, that in itself evidences um quite a quite an, a, a say upsetting uh, perspective that you know there's a lack of education with regards to you know the human rights framework and how it can be applicable to everybody in Northern Ireland and how that human rights framework can be applicable to support people um you know in terms of their quality of life and how they actually have minimum standards that they are um I suppose owed by their government um you know and that in itself evidences that there's a lack of leadership in terms of taking the charge in the unionist community on human rights approaches or rights-based strategies um, to support the communities. 
and I think perhaps that's a, such an important point. It needs a bit of uh, emphasis placed on it, which is the sense that the, the, the rights conversation came out of what, what is quite bluntly the discrimination against the Catholic population uh, that was yeah. evident uh, in, the, in the protests in the 1960s. Over time, the demography of Northern Ireland has changed. And in terms of the, the, the median age of Northern Ireland, then significantly it is people from a Catholic nationalist Republican uh, background that are forming a much increasingly large section of the workforce. Um, and consequently, going forward, it is people from the Protestant Unionist Loyalist uh, background that demographically may become uh, the minority of the population and therefore they have a specific interest in having their rights protected through a human rights framework. Yes, um, you know, and this is what I, I find the irony in terms of, you know, the, the, the big house unionists, if you will. Um, you know, albeit, as I said earlier, you know, they, they did take the, the lead on occasions, you know, lobbied for this, that they, that they wanted a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Um, but then when it came, it came to the front, you know, they, they didn't want any sort of disparity between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. They felt that it undermined the constitutional position, um, you know, and they, they, they didn't want any separation. Um, were in doing so would have been seen as a badge of difference. Where now, if you look, what separates Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom, you know, oh, well, not so much now, but previously, you know, the, the marriage equality and the, the reproductive rights for women, you know, having that difference was worn as a badge of honour by mm. these very same parties. You know, so having that difference was worn as a badge of honour. Um, you know, so there, there is that kind of. Um, what do you want to call it, a political coin, you know, they'll they'll use it when it suits. Um, but in terms of their uh, commitment to tackling the socioeconomic deprivations, the, the improving the quality of life for citizens in Northern Ireland, I have no doubt that there is a level of commitment within those parties to support um, strategies towards those sorts of things, but actually a Bill of Rights, which I had said previously, you know, one that transcends those civil, liber civil liberties, talking about the identities, the national freedoms, the security, etc., one that actually encompasses um, those socioeconomic rights. Um, in my view, being a pragmatic unionist would actually save the union. So I think there's more, more um, for unionist parties to be interested in um, and, and should revisit that conversation. And if I'm not, if I'm not wrong, Paul, it was actually included there in the last agreement. Um, where they were to revisit it again for, mm. gosh, the umpteenth time. Well, and, um, and of course there is a Bill of Rights committee being established in the Northern Ireland Assembly to consider a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Yes, I, I think that I should hope attitudes may be different. Um, on this occasion, and particularly with the, with Brexit on the horizon, you know the the legal landscape there is absolutely going to change. That much is inevitable. Mm. Um, it's inevitable because it was a key component of the Leave campaign, um, and because it was in the Tory government's manifesto, um, who subsequently hold the a majority government. You know. Um, before we before we go on to Brexit, let's just touch again on the question of leadership of political unionism, because there is this important issue which does touch on rights about the fact that it seems to me as an outsider 
that the leadership of political unionism is not necessarily speaking for the whole of the working class loyalist base when it re objects to women's reproductive rights and uh, or uh, you know liberalisation of abortion if the, if the wording is more acceptable to people uh, plus same sex marriage that that doesn't seem to me to represent uh, necessarily the majority of the working class uh, voters of, within unionism. It doesn't. Um, this has been proven time and time again with opinion polls and with surveys. Um, and Lisa Talk have done a number of opinion polls on occasions which have evidenced that. Um, but drilling down further, uh, Dr. Pete Sherlow, Professor Pete Sherlow, um, to the University of Liverpool, they recently carried out the post-election um, interviews, you know, in the surveys across, and they find actually that unionists were more in favour. Um, you know, they were much more liberal-minded than what their political leaders were. Um, you know, and and, and that's been the case for some time, Paul, in the way that I've always tried to explain that. And I, I think I, I kind of explained it in my, my opening remarks with regards to, um, you know, every election in Northern Ireland is a constitutional social strength rather mm. than a mandate for socioeconomic change. Yeah. And until such times, our system of government evolves, moves beyond the, you know, the, the post-conflict transition and into something that's much more mature, that's something that reflects a better democracy for this place that, you know, where there is trust, where we do have a Bill of Rights that prevents a majority government abusing people, whether that, you know, regardless of who that majority government is, um, I think that uh, until such times, regrettably, we're condemned to the politics of fear and division rather than hope and ambition. Now, I cut you off just now from talking about Brexit, but I mean, these things do touch very much about Brexit because the Brexit campaign was more about saying, well, let we determine these things as United Kingdom. We are not part of a, a European approach to human rights and uh, collectivism. Uh, and uh, in a sense, the idea of a Bill of Rights is alien to the United Kingdom because the UK has an unwritten constitution and the idea of creating a written Bill of Rights is therefore, in a sense, alien to the UK constitution. And as a unionist, as a unionist politician, what, what's your take on that? Um, well, you know, yes, OK, it's alien to the constitution, but, you know, let's not forget the co-guarantor of British government, you know, our, our sovereign parliament agreed to a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Um, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, uh, you know, a Bill of Rights isn't intended to, it's, sorry, it is intended to supplement a wider human rights framework within the United Kingdom, not replace it. Um, you know, and there, there are financial, economic, environmental health, equality disparities in the duties of governments between Northern Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales already. Um, you know, so I, I don't feel that in any way, shape or form it uh, undermines Northern Ireland's constitutional position within the United Kingdom. Now, the other person I've spoken with on the question of a Bill of Rights is Professor Colin Harvey of Queen's University. And, and one of the things that motivates Colin is this sense that rights that one has as a European Union passport holder is now lost for those of us who are now UK citizens but not EU citizens. Uh, things like you know, visa-free travel within the European Union, uh, access to, uh, for, for uh, our kids to, to study at universities within Europe. I mean, do you see that as a legitimate issue in terms of the human rights conversation? Yes. Um, you know, there were rights that we enjoyed and now we've lost them, but there were, there were rights that were, I suppose, purchased. Is that right? Without... Um, being controversial, but you know, we purchased with our, our membership of the European Union and obviously the subsequent agreements that enabled those 
grace to be afforded to us. Um, and obviously it's a consequence directly of Brexit. Um, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of pain in this poll for everyone, um, even those who voted leave. Um, you know, for myself, who, do, who is very interested in, in human rights, who is, um, you know, of course, want to deliver rights for Northern Ireland, um, it frightens me, you know, when you read over the Tory government manifest, manifesto, you know, they suggest they're going to update the Human Rights Act, which, of course, is, is much softer language than scrapping it, as it's been touted in the press previously. But it also makes the assertion that after Brexit, we'll continue to have, or we'll continue to be, an outward-looking country that is a champion of human rights. What that looks like is anyone's guess. But for the non-conservative voting electorate, it's a nightmare scenario. Um, you know, no one knows what it is going to look like, and until these negotiations are done and we reach the 31st of December, um, none of us have any idea what it's going to look like. But what I would say, what is encouraging, is through the um, agreement, I keep going to call it the Storm Tice Agreement, New Decade, New Approach. Yes. <laughs> um, there's that many. Uh, new Decade, New Approach, you know, there was, albeit a sentence, but it made reference to the political parties in Northern Ireland. Um, having a seat at the negotiating table and issues to do with Northern Ireland and certainly those um, European rights that we have lost um, or are seemingly lost would be uh, hot on the lips of those who would be representing us at the negotiating table. So at this stage, what it's going to look like is anybody's guess, but uh, you know we've used that word lost and I think that by its very definition that those rights may have been lost. Julianne, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. No worries, Paul. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. See you later. Cheers. Bye. bye.